G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Connecting faith to life. Vision. The story. Um, it was the trauma, it was the bad things done to me, like I was flogged with a pool cue at the age of nine from my nana's husband. It crippled me, you know, and the saddest thing about that, my older uncle was in a, another room and he just sat there and didn't do nothing about it, and so I felt betrayed and let down by him at the same time. I just had a bunch of belligerent, insecure addicts and alcoholics around me, and it was just atrocious. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Quite frankly, we have a difficult one for you today, as it's hard to imagine anyone growing up in worse circumstances than our guest, Mark Johnston. But at the same time, it's also hard to imagine anyone's life more remarkably changing for good. We'll hear his incredible transformation journey today on The Story. And parents, due to some of the intense themes that will be discussed dealing with drugs and violence, you might want to have your younger children involved in an activity in another room. As you listen to today's conversation, Mark Johnston is chatting with Eric Scatterbo. Mark, welcome to the program. Hey, good to be here. Glad to have you on the program to share your story. You're joining us in the studio in Brisbane. And let's get started. Let's go right back to the very beginning. Where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in Wokenya. It's not in South Africa. It's actually in rural outback of New South Wales. Okay, and what was life like growing up? It was actually quite fun. My family were country music singers, so a lot of my upbringing was around parties, pubs, uh, country music festivals, backyards, get-togethers. At the time, anyway, it was really fun because we used to just play on our motorbikes, play on bikes, play games, cricket. Uh, We even had a dunk pool at the back while they were playing music. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Okay, well, I just said that it's hard to imagine anyone having worse circumstances growing up, so obviously there was a downside as well. Yeah, yeah well, that was the good side, but um, it, it, it went way downhill when my mum uh, was in a relationship, and he was brought up in boys' homes. He was adopted and uh, in and out of prison, so that's when my life spiraled downwards dramatically. Okay, and was it because of him? Yeah, yeah. So he was extremely violent, mm-hmm. and yet I took him on board as my father as well because my real father actually rejected me and didn't want nothing to do with me because he split with my mum. So I, I just glued to him and uh, looked to him for everything. And, and you know, it, it, it was really sad because uh, I'd be always getting mixed messages from him, uh, like he'd love me one moment and next thing you know, it was almost like he'd reject me. But the worst thing was seeing my mum getting violently bashed. Mm. And you reckon that was because of his upbringing as well? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, apparently, you know, he was tied to um, a clothesline when he was younger and flogged and uh, seen his mum violently bashed as well. So people always come from their hurt space and hurt other people. And how old were you at at this time? Well, it, it varied. So it could have been from the age of eight to about the age of maybe 13. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually got worse. So, you know, for example, I remember our house in William Street in Broken Hill. Um, 
we locked up the house one night. Mum was terrified. We had a baseball bat, uh, thinking if anyone was to break into the house, that we'd actually hear a broken window or a door getting, you know, pushed open. And um, to our surprise, he was already up in the roof for a week. Uh, oh, wow. Watching my mum. And we were in the house one day and we could smell, well, mum could smell a, a stench coming out of the roof. And uh, we didn't realise that he was actually, while mum was out of the house, while we out of the house, he was um, taking food up through the manhole and hiding up in the roof. And the food was going off and um, we were wondering where the stench was coming from. And uh, one night, yeah, he jumped through the manhole and started bashing mum again. And I've only got glimpses um, because I'm not even sure when it happened, how it happened, because there were so many events. Like one night, you know, um, in the front window of the panel actually next to the door, he broke through that trying to break into the house. Uh, another time he uh, torched uh, my mum's car in the front yard and the whole street was shut down, cops and ambulance rocked up. Um, but one particular night was horrifying for me. It was... Um, I just heard a blood-curdling scream and went into the room and he was on top of her with a knife up to her throat and um, oh my goodness cursing her and and uh, chucked her out of the room chucked me out of the room and I don't even remember what happened I, I've got a mind blank over it at this point but um you know it's just it was just event after event after event and um he ended up going to prison um, because the actual police caught him suffocating my mum with a pillow Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, he was going to kill her. Now, the saddest thing out of all that was um, I thought, you know, because as a little boy, why would my mum be with a man that's violently bashing her and why do we have to sit around and watch this? And yeah. I asked my mum after many, many years, actually only, I think, a few months ago, a year ago, and I said, Mum, why did you stay with him? And she said, son, to be honest with you, um, he told me if, if I was to leave him, he was going to kill us kids. Oh, wow. And she said, I actually believed him, so I refused to leave him and uh, put up with the beatings. Wow, that's that's terrible. And what was going on inside of you during all this? Um, absolute terror. You know, it was a very traumatic time for me. You know, how can you love someone and yet be terrified of them at the same time? You know, I was, never knew how to talk the man. He was very unpredictable. Yeah, I can't explain the horrifying feelings that I had as a little boy. I was powerless, and I think that's what made it even worse. Yeah, I mean, you must have been, like, living on eggshells because you never knew what would set them off. Oh, 100%. Like, I remember one time I was making a Milo, for example, and, you know, and he said, only put one sugar in the Milo, and uh, he walked out of the room, and I put one extra teaspoon of sugar in my Milo, and he must have been watching me, so he grabbed me, said, stand there and look at the window, and grabbed the strap and just smashed me as hard as he could with his strap over and over and over and over. And I mean, he flogged me that hard with the strap that put scabs down the back of my legs. And I just remember having this rage and just this hatred for him because I could feel this murderous mm. um, aggression behind me as he was flogging me. Yeah, and then as you entered into your teenage years with all this rage inside, what happened next? Well, I started experimenting first um, with obviously marijuana. And then that eventuated onto different drugs like LSD, and I ended up on medications, antipsychotic medications. And your and, motivation and, for drugs? Uh, it was to numb the pain, mm -hmm. or, or in some cases, it was an escape for me. Um, when you're on acid, you know, you feel great. When you're on speed, you feel high. When you're on heroin or morphine, you know, it sort of makes you feel comfortable and at peace. So, you know, I'd be taking copious 
and I mean copious. I wasn't just taking little dabbles here and there. I was literally taking handfuls of tablets. Um, you know, for example, you know, mum came into the room one time and there was a hundred pack of Valiums empty and, you know, to be eating tablets like lollies. Um, the pain got so ferocious. Uh, I remember the day my mum said that she loved me and I grabbed the knife. Apparently she said I threatened to kill her first. I don't remember it, but then I turned around and only cut halfway through my arm with a knife because of the internal pain I was feeling. I just could not get rid of the pain. Now, your stepfather was out of the picture at this point? Yeah, he was out of the picture at this point. And, but yet the um, pain persisted for you? Oh, the pain was excruciating. And I think that's why I attempted suicide many, many times. Um, as I said, the pain was so severe. Uh, the whole street was shut down at one point because I threatened to kill my mum with a knife and I was pacing on the front porch and went out the, went out the police with a knife as well. They ended up medicating me and taking me to the hospital. Another time I do vividly remember is this pain was just eaten at me on the inside and I just went out the front on the metal tin fence and just started throwing my arms down and just hacking my arms on the fence just to get rid of the pain. Wow. Now, some people would think, well, if the evil stepfather was gone, then what was the source of your pain at this point? Um, it was the trauma. It was the bad things done to me. Like, you know, in my early years, I was sexually abused by my mm. extended family. I was sexually abused by... Um, friends of the family that looked after me. Um, so it's more than just him? Oh, 100%. You know, like, I was flogged with a pool cue at the age of nine from my nana's husband just because I had a shot in the pool table. He smashed oh, me to pieces goodness. with a pool cue, you know. and So the abuse was coming from multiple oh, areas. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was hectic and it crippled me, you know. And the saddest yeah. thing about that, my older uncle was in a, another room and he just sat there and didn't do nothing about it. And so I felt betrayed and let down by him at the same time. Yeah. I just had a bunch of belligerent, uh, insecure addicts and alcoholics around me, and it was just atrocious. It was, I felt isolated, I felt abandoned, I felt lonely, I felt helpless and powerless in every situation. And thus, drugs became a way of kind of killing that pain? Oh, 100%. Yeah, well, um, as I was saying before, I, I don't know how many times I attempted suicide, but I would definitely say up to 25 to 50 times, um, and by the age of 19... Um, I ended up in seven drug-induced comas. Um, they tied me down like a wild animal. Mum said they kept coming in and injecting me with needles just to sedate me because I was crazy. I was why, delirious. why are they doing that? I don't understand. Because I was delirious. I was on the street. I was screaming out. I uh, couldn't make sense of me. Basically, I OD'd um, and I was taking copious amounts of cogentin, which was a side effect of tablet for the injections I was getting. Mm-hmm. So I started hallucinating and seeing things and talking to people that weren't there and they'd find me on the street and losing my clothes, losing my possessions, and they'd just have to pick me up and take me to the hospital, and I was just crazy, just gone. And so a part of them sedating me was they had to put me into a coma. Just to kind of try to control you? or Yeah, I was uncontrollable. Mum reckons there was this bed in the hospital that, you know, you couldn't even hardly budge. She reckons I was chucking around with one arm. She said porters couldn't hold me down, police couldn't hold me down. They had to strap me down and inject me. Oh, wow. Yeah, and... So- um, yeah, talk about a worst-case scenario. <laughs> yeah, well, the, 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 the interesting thing about it, there was an actual doctor there, and he said to my mum, because my mum was there, that's why I know mm-hmm. it's seven drug-induced coma, she was there every time, and she said that someone, the doctor that didn't believe in God, said that to my mum, if, if your son was to ever come back, he's going to be a permanent vegetable. So he didn't think there, there was any hope for you? No, nah, there, there was no hope. I wasn't one of these guys you'd say, oh, that guy's got hope for the future or, yeah, let's just stick in there. No, it was just a matter of time. My mum ended up 
uh, bound to the house with um, anxiety attacks and panic attacks uh, for 10 years. I thought it was because of my stepfather, it was actually because of me, because she was waiting for a phone call to say that I was dead. You're listening to the story, and at this point, it's sounding pretty bleak in the life of Mark Johnston. As we just heard, he even had to be put into a drug-induced coma for his own protection. However, the good news is, it all begins to turn around. We'll find out how when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're continuing with Eric Scatterbo's conversation with Mark Johnston, whose life was spiralling out of control due to drug abuse, Mark is the author of the book, Marked by Mercy. Mark, what happened next in your life? Yeah, well, I um, continued to uh, obviously take drugs, but I remember one night I nearly had a punch-up with all my mates. Uh, I ordered them all outside. I wanted to rip their heads off, and I was up for about three or four days on speed. I went home, and I was screaming out like a werewolf. I was ferocious. I was just had enough anyway so as i went home i don't even remember but mum reckons i was actually laying in bed and spewing over myself for three days and um i had scabs over me uh, infections all over me i was skinny i lost heaps of weight and then when i came to she said get out and i and i said what do you mean get out and she said get out of my house enough's enough you can't live here no more and i said well what am i going to do and she said, well, there's a family in Sydney that are willing to take you in and, you know, get your help. Now, how did she know about this family in Sydney? Uh, because she must have known them before they left my hometown. Mm-hmm. And um, I think at one point she knew them from the past and she knew they were Christians. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and so I flew to Sydney and um, they tried to get me to go to Bible study groups and worship places and church and... I really didn't want to buy it, to be honest with you. Mm. I, I strung out in drugs. I didn't really want yeah. to go to the church. Was it your time choice at that point, huh? Yeah, well, that's it. I, you know, I wasn't against God. I just didn't think that was the option that I needed. And um, and you had never turned to Him through all of your dark periods. Oh, gave my heart to Him, but never really turned my life around for Him. You know, like my 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 journey's been a rough one. Um, okay, and, but but God wasn't through with you. What what, what happened with this family in Sydney? Well, what happened is. Um, I have to just explain this to understand what I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first introduction to the Bible when, when I was on uh, drugs with my step-uncle, were high as a kite, and he was preaching at me. And uh, he actually got taken to the same place. And so these people were just getting a bit annoyed with me and saying, you know, we're trying to help you. You're not wanting a bar of it. Go and talk to this guy at the sink. And he's washing dishes. And the next minute he turns around for a conversation. I don't even know what happened. And he said it. Mark, John 3.3 3 says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And he said again, he goes, Mark, John 3.5 says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and spirit. And then he quoted John 3.16 to me, and I thought, man, I want to know what this guy knows. So I went home where I was staying, and for the first time, I um, opened up the Bible. 
I thought it was the book of Psalms. I found out later it was the book of Psalms. <laughs> and uh, as I'm reading through it, I didn't know biblical hermeneutics. I knew nothing about the Bible. And I was in Psalms chapter 72, and as I was reading down, anticipating and trying to understand the Bible, um, I felt a face uh look at me through the Bible and I felt his eyes, I felt his face looking at me as though someone would be up in front of your face. And the pa- the words didn't jump off the page. I actually had a person speak the words off the page to me personally from his own heart. And he said to me these words, he said directly to me, I'm going to rescue you from oppression, violence and fraud because your blood is precious in my sight. Mm. And from that encounter, it absolutely rocked me. No one after that point ever tried to get me to pick up the Bible ever again. I had an encounter with God and he, he told me personally that my blood was precious to him and he was going to rescue me. He personally spoke it to me. It wasn't just something that bounced off the page. And after all you had been through, yep. how did that impact your heart? Oh, mate, uh, it, like uh, as any addict, they pick up drugs and take as much as they can when they can and how they can. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what i done with the Bible. I was just ravenous. I was so hungry for the truth. I was so hungry to know more about what that person said to me. So this this insatious desire was burning in me to know the truth. And so every break, every bus trip to work, I would pick up my Bible and read it and read it and read it. And you're reading God's word, the truth, yep. and it's going into your heart. How is it impacting you? It impacted me majorly. Um, it transformed my life, and it still burns in my heart today. I feel like I, I, as much as I read it, I still feel like I've, I just don't read enough, and I just want to know more about him. Now, I can imagine going back to your childhood, you always wanted a father, and you were rejected <laughs> by your earthly father, and yeah, then you had right. this terrible substitute father who <laughs> abused you, and now you're finding out you have a heavenly father. Yes, I do. I do have a heavenly father, and I found out that he loved me deeply. Mm. Um, I know that because uh, another occasion I had an encounter with his love one night at a church service. Um, I know it's a bit out there, but he um, his eyes appeared to me, and my eyes were closed, and this love transfers through my being. And um, a video clip in my mind's eye appeared to me that he created, and it was my childhood and me growing up and all my faults and failures and shortcomings and where I missed it and where I got it wrong and this innocence and this love was penetrating through the video clip towards me. And I broke down and I couldn't stop crying. I cried so much because I didn't think he loved me that much. Mm. I cried and cried and cried. The, the, the preacher's son come up to me and said, mate, it's okay, you can stop crying now. And as he said that, the love of God touched me again and I just kept weeping and weeping and weeping. So it's just flowing in you, all oh. this love from God. Yeah, it was transferring through his eyes, mm. and I could feel it rushing through my being, his love for me. The image I'm getting in my mind is like you were like a dry desert just yearning <laughs> for water. Is that kind of a, an accurate picture? <laughs> yeah, you could say it like that, yeah. <laughs> Longing to be loved and mm-hmm. approved and wanted, yeah, yeah, 100%. Unfortunately, we're quickly running out of time, but let's get to the good stuff. Uh, from that point on, it, your life changes. What direction does it go? Yeah, well, it sort of went, you know, it wasn't an easy journey. It went up and down, and I sort of feel like in my heart I didn't get it as much as other people wanted me to get it. And uh, But, you know, God got me in 2011. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, he nailed me. 
<laughs> and uh, I entered the transformations program in uh, the Gold Coast, the actual recovery discipleship program in, in 2011. Mm-hmm. And I was in rehabilitation discipleship for one year and three weeks. And then I became a house supervisor in leadership as staff. So you transitioned from just learning how to get off of drugs to actually helping? Yeah, yeah. And I went was that through a hard transition? Quick. It was huge because all that trauma and all that pain that was still sitting there from years ago, mm-hmm. uh, it was time. God, God just said, righto, it's time, son. I need to deal with this stuff in your life. And it wasn't easy. It was very painful. And then I went through that rigorous process. And he stripped some stuff and broke some stuff off my life and put people around me that weren't going to be manipulated by me or tolerate my insecurities. And so, yeah, I'd done that and then went through, obviously, the process. I it was a case manager, a program coordinator, and currently I'm the director at the Gold Coast campus. Unbelievable. <laughs> yes. I mean, what a transition. And But you said it. we're going over it pretty quickly here, but it was yeah. a long journey. It was excruciating it was excruciating what was the hardest part the hardest part was i've been through pain nearly all my life mm-hmm. my whole life has just been one and trying to kill the bag. pain yeah and trying to kill it and numb it and escape it and now i'm getting confronted uh, rebuked loved trained discipled uh, it's close-knit it's a family environment i thought and, and some tough love oh man it was tough yeah but they it, it, it ironed out the creases. <laughs> it, it helped me in ways that I don't think any other thing would have. And yes, it was it, it was very painful because I didn't want to experience any more pain. And and this is where I think we misunderstand God. We think God's the one that's just going to take away all our pain, as though we're never going to experience it. And this mm-hmm. is where I realised at transformations that pain is always going to be there at some measure, whether extreme, whether small. We're always going to encounter pain. But I think what I learned through it is that he is close to me in the pain, that he's my ever-present help in time of need, that he's actually close to the broken heart and the contrite spirit. And I realize that he's with me. It's not something I have to run away from. I just need to know that I'm not alone in it. Well, I mean, Psalm 23 says we're going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say we're not going to have valleys. It just says that he's going to be with us in the valleys. Exactly, and that's where trials are compulsory, Mm -hmm. but being a victim and being angry is a choice. Okay, and you said right now you're in charge of some of these rehab centers? Yeah, well, the one in the Gold Coast, I'm currently the director there, so I have under my care uh, two male houses and a female house, Mm -hmm. and so I have about five staff that uh, I mentor and disciple myself, and yeah, we, we run the whole program. Wow. What a remarkable turn of events in your life. Hard to believe. But lastly, what can you say for anybody listening today, the lessons learned from the life journey of Mark Johnston? What I can say is if we don't renew our thinking to God's way of doing it, Mm -hmm. we'll always find ourselves at the same spot and have the same challenges. Nothing will ever change. We've got to resolve that his way is the best way whether we like it or not. And if we can learn to trust him, we will start to see him in in the true light of who he really is instead of us misperceiving who he is and judging who he is and thinking he's something that he's not. Um, he's He's a good, good father. He is 
more than what we think he is. He is wonderful in every sense of the word. He's the most beautiful person that I've ever encountered on the face of the planet, and I can say that hands down 110%, and he will always look after you, and he will not leave you. He will not forsake you, and he does have good plans and purposes for every individual, no matter who you are and where you're from. And if anyone's listening today and thinks, well, there's no way he could love me. Well, look, look at Mark's story. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And, you know, I think we always have to remember, I think it's in Romans 5, 8, it says, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he didn't die for us when we're at our best. So for people to say, how could God ever forgive me? He already done it for us on the cross. That's his sign. That's his signature of love. Exactly. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Oh, absolute pleasure. Our guest today has been Mark Johnston. He's the author of the book, Marked by Mercy, which tells this full story if you want more details. And you can go to his website to find out more information. It's www.markcjohnston.com. That's markcjohnston.com. That was Eric Scadabo chatting with Mark Johnston, author of the book, Marked by Mercy. And what an incredible transformation has taken place in his life. From a horrific childhood filled with abuse of many kinds to now running the very drug rehab centre he had entered to get clean. A remarkable example of how none of us are beyond God's reach and his ability to turn around seemingly hopeless situations. Our God is a good, good father. Well, thanks for joining us for this inspiring story. And until next time, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. They weren't preachy preachy. It was like Jesus loves you and he died on the cross to save you from your sins and to change you. And my response was like, you know, Jesus loves people like you in your white shirt and your nice tie. He doesn't love people like me. Look at me. But they didn't just talk about God's love for us. They showed it in practical ways. Sheila Leach is originally from the UK and now travels the world as part of a medical disaster relief team. So it is hard to believe that at one point she thought her life was beyond hope. We'll find out about her amazing story next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.